Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, as we consider uh, the last portion of this chapter. It's been a while since we've been in Proverbs, just the way in which the timing of things has worked out. But here, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 to 35. And this is Solomon uh, writing under inspiration of the Spirit. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go away. Come back again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. The devious person is an abomination to the Lord. The upright are his confidence. The upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives grace. The wise, or he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but the fools get disgrace. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask that you would open our eyes. Our gracious God, as we come to you for wisdom this evening, we pray that you are granted in the ways in which we interact with those around us, that our paths would be righteous as we seek to serve you in all things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, which is the right path to go? I remember when I first moved out here, I guess a little over a year ago, me and my dad were out sightseeing, and we were out in kind of Lebanon Sweet Home uh, uh, in that area, and uh, somebody had told us that we needed to go visit some mountain called Bald Peter. I still haven't seen it to this day, but we went that day to go to try to find Bald Peter Mountain. We were told it was worth the visit, so I entered it into my GPS, we're driving along the main highway, uh, and of course, I was naturally confused. It said we were only about uh, a mile and a half from the mountain, and yet it says the drive time was an hour and a half. GPS offers a shortcut, so a shortcut off the beaten path. I went, great, this will cut, uh, cut off our, our time significantly. And so we took it, so we're driving down this made road, there's this little kind of side maintenance type road going up the mountain, not, not paved or anything like that. And I go, well, here, let's turn this way. My dad says, are you sure you know what you're doing? I said, yes, of course I know what I'm doing. We start making our way up the side of the mountain, and, and the path forks, and by this point in time, uh, we had lost a signal. And so uh, I, I say, well, let's, let's turn to the right. Uh, and so we go up a little ways, and, and the path forks again. And so uh, I, we, we, we pick a route, and the next thing you know, it forks again, and there's no way to, to turn around. And uh, I say, well, you know, we're bound sooner or later. It's got to be just over the next you know, little hump. And finally, we make it over the hump, and just as we're getting over the top, uh, there lying before us in front of the path is a massive fallen tree. No way to get over this big tree, and so now we're stuck. There's no way to turn around, uh, and now it's starting to get dark, and it's starting to rain. And uh, my dad begins to make fun of me for the position uh, I had gotten ourselves into. And so, so sure enough, since there's no place to start, we just I simply had to go in reverse and kind of go down the side of this mountain trying to remember which way uh, we had gone off the beaten path. And eventually, uh, uh, surprise, surprise, you know, we, we survived. Um, we, we made it back down uh, and got back on the, the, the open highway and decided, well, it's dark, let's just go, go home. So we never actually got to see the mountain. 
Well, what we find is that Scripture speaks of the course of our life as a road that we are to travel, and yet there are only two paths. There is the straight and narrow that you're not supposed to deviate from, uh, and there are all these other off-roads that promise success, promise a quick trip, uh, and yet they are paths that only lead to destruction. If you recall, the broader context of this chapter is that, that wisdom is, is like sitting at the feet of a master, learning a new craft or a trade. This is a, a divine apprenticeship, so to speak. Sitting under the tutelage of God as he instructs us in the way in which we are to act in the path of this life. If we are to mix the metaphors we see here uh, this evening, wisdom is a roadmap that will keep us safe through the trials and pitfalls of this life. So this last section here, verses 27 to 35, focuses on the proper path to take, uh, particularly as we relate to our neighbors around us. Not only uh, what we might call our equals, but also those in authority over us, our superiors. And finally, it reiterates those two paths that are laid out before us, the path of wisdom and the path of folly, and urges us to choose the path of wisdom. So we'll see those three things tonight. Uh, Our relationship to our superiors, you see that in verse 27. Our relationship to our equals in verses 28 to 32. And then the two paths set before us once more in verses 33 to 35. You know, I think if we, uh, it doesn't take long to to look at the world around us and, and realize how much this generation despises authority. Uh, and I'm not saying that to sound like an old codger, you know, you tooting, you stinking kids, you know, shaking a cane at people as they run across the street. Uh, I think every uh, age is a rebellious age, but uh, this particular age, not simply high schoolers, but the, the world in which we live is really one that we see despising authority. The current cultural climate has embedded in it the notion that rebellion is a God-given right. Uh, In some ways, this is an attitude that's embedded even in our national DNA, kind of this, what we might call the hyper-democratization of society, where every form and notion of authority continues to be leveled further and further and further. There's this tendency to try to obliterate all distinctions of rank and office and order around us treating the civil government as if it had zero authority, treating uh, parents as if they have no particular charge or mandate but to give the child what he is crying and demanding for. But what we find is that this ethos runs contrary to the fifth commandment. To honor your father and your mother's cursory examination of how the Bible uses the fifth commandment, I think, uh, shows that this law uh, includes more than how we're to treat our own flesh and blood parents or grandparents. If you look at the larger catechism, I encourage you to do that at some point this week, questions 123 to 133, it devotes 11 questions uh, to the fifth commandment. Reminds us of the duties that the populace owes the civil magistrate and the duties that the civil magistrate owe the people. It reminds us of the duties that a congregation owes its elders and also the duties that elders owe the congregation. Same thing for an employee and his boss and a boss 
and his employee, or even that of parents to children, and even of a wife to husband and husband to wife. You see, embedded in society, there is a uh, a hierarchy of sorts that the Lord has, in fact, ordained. And the the language of our catechism uh, uses that language of superiors and inferiors. We've got to be careful uh, how we can, uh, how we should understand that passage or that that language, and how we should not understand that language. When they speak of superiors, it's not saying that there are people who might be, uh, for instance, you know, morally superior to you or somehow uh, kind of genetically superior. That is not what is meant there. Rather, it means that there are people in that very uh, clearly the Lord has put in authority over us and they have put, and the Lord has put us in authority over other people as well. This is how any government works. This is how any business works. This is how any uh, functioning family works, right? There is somebody who is in charge, whether it be the manager, the CEO, the king, the president, so on and so forth. There is a, uh, a hierarchy of sorts. So don't misunderstand me when I say, when I talk about the duties that we owe to our superiors, uh, as uh, somehow I'm saying that there are certain people that your boss is somehow genetically superior to you. I just want to make sure that that's not misunderstood, or um, that uh, a husband is somehow genetically superior to his wife or something like that. That's not what I'm meaning when I'm talking about uh, superiors and inferiors. Rather, it's simply that there's a hierarchy in society. And that order, that hierarchy that has been implanted by God and established even at the creational order uh, has been disrupted by sin. It can be disrupted by sin from either party. It's seen either in the form of tyranny or exasperation by the superior. You think of uh, Peter's uh, writing uh, to father saying, Father, stop exasperating your children. You know, it's, it's, it's using your authority in a, in a really oppressive, stifling way. But then there's also the address to those uh, who are under authority uh, to, to obey, not to rebel, to bear with the weaknesses and infirmities of those in authority over you. Right? Even when there are those in authority over us, uh, we find out when they sin against us, and they do, it does not give us the freedom to do whatever we want as some form of retaliation. Does that make sense? You understand where I'm at so far? I'm saying this to try to get at what Proverbs, what Solomon is trying to say here, is almost an embedded assumption, a cultural norm. Whereas today, we almost have to defend the fact there's some people who actually have the God-given right to tell you what to do. And this is why Peter and Paul will spend so much time uh, talking about uh, what we might call the household codes. You read the last few chapters of Ephesians and Colossians or the end of 1 Peter. Uh, they're, uh, they are reminding us of the duties that we owe to those above us, those below us, and also those around us. I think what's interesting is that none of them say, well, hey, look, your master stomped on your rights, so now you have the duty to stick it to the man. No, rather, what's reiterated over and over again is that there is a certain honor that is due to one's superior, even when he sins against you. Think of what what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says, honor the emperor. Okay, uh, Paul, that sounds great. Uh, which, Which emperor is this that you're talking about? You're talking about one of the ones that are real nice to the Christian faith? No, I'm, I'm talking about the, just the, the emperor. Here's the office of emperor. You're to honor him. Well, who's the emperor when Paul's writing to Rome? It's Nero. What's Nero doing to Christians? 
uh, you know, uh, using uh, the bodies of Christians as tiki torches to light up his nighttime keggers. Not particularly uh, friendly to Christians, we might say, and yet Paul says because of the office, there is a dignity that is due to him. This is the path of wisdom. This is the path of the cross. You think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, where he tells the disciples, he says, look, the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, you must do what they tell you to do. It's really striking, isn't it? Here, here are the enemies of the cross. Here are the ones that Jesus castigates more than anybody else, it seems. And yet Jesus tells the people, you got to listen to them when they tell you what to do because they actually hold a place of authority. Now, you're not to do as they do, uh, but there is a certain, um, there is a legitimate authority that's bound up with them, even if the, the people themselves are abusing that particular authority. And, and that's what we see here when it says, you know, do not withhold good from those to whom it's due. You know, quite literally. Do not withhold good from one's bail. It's a word that simply means master or husband. In other words, one's superior. There are certain duties that are owed that particular person, even if the person is acting sinfully. As to say that the rank one holds, whether it be in the domestic sphere, one's work environment, the church, or the government, by virtue of their position, elicits a certain respect even when they're acting sinfully and doing wrong. I don't think this is something that anybody likes to hear, um, but my guess is it's something that no American especially likes to hear. But Scripture, scripture must guide our conduct more than cultural norms. Right? We're citizens of a different kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. What does it look like to be citizens of heaven as we move through this earthly wilderness? I'm going to consider what Paul says to Rome and consider the way in which Paul's own instructions to the church of Rome echoes what we see here in verse 27. Render to everybody what is due to them. All right, Paul, what do you mean by that? Well, render taxes to whom taxes are due. Custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor is due. That's, that's, that's quite a handful when we consider that there are certain duties. You are not to withhold good from those over you. You, know, you think of Justin Martyr in the early church, you think of Calvin in the midst of the Reformation as they continue to write uh, to the civil magistrate. For Justin Martyr, he's writing to the emperor. For uh, Calvin, he's writing to the king of France going, why, why are you persecuting us? We, we're the best citizens. Why are you doing this? We are actually instructing people to obey you insofar as we can to give you the proper honor and dignity that is afforded your position we seek to honor you in all things, and yet even when Scripture forbids us from obeying them in certain ways, we are seeking to do so in fear and reverence, not looking for an excuse to finally stick it to the man. I'm going to consider Acts chapter 5 when uh, the authorities tell Peter, James, and John that they have to stop preaching. 
How do Peter, James, and John respond? They, they could have easily uh, told off the authorities, you know, forget it, pal, we're not going to listen to you. They recognize that they have a higher allegiance to God, and they say, look, our allegiance is to God rather than man, but the, the manner in which they say it, uh, they say it with great reverence and respect. Even when they had to disobey their lawful authorities, they did not do so in a flippant manner. You read Acts chapter 4, they say, look, whether or not you think this is right or not, you need to consider this, but, but we can only do, we, can, we have to obey where God commands us to obey. See, in other words, uh, when it comes to dealing with those in authority over us, it's not just the matter of obedience, but the manner in how we treat them even if there has to be disobedience. Uh, d- does that make sense? There is a certain honor. There's something that is properly due to them. I think I mentioned this a few months ago, but one of my favorite kind of war movies is a little mini-series called Band of Brothers. And towards uh, the end of the series, it's, it's about the Second World War. There is uh, a real kind of sleazeball of a, uh, of a, a, a figure, and uh, he refuses to uh, um, salute uh, a man of higher rank, a man who is a real noble uh, character in this series. And the character points to him and calls him out and says, remember, he says, we salute the rank, not the man. In other words, just because you don't like me doesn't keep you, doesn't let you off the hook uh, from the due honor and custom that is due um, that particular officer. So in Proverbs, uh, this is hard. I think this is something that's really uh, difficult to wrestle with because it really, again, runs contrary to kind of American cultural values. Let me do what I want, and if you say anything otherwise, you you can... Fill in the blank. <laughs> I don't even have a nice way to say it, but we can all imagine well, what our own hearts would say to people like that who have legitimate authority uh, over us. But I think what's interesting, Proverbs does not say give honor to those in authority over you. Unless you disagree with them, then all bets are off. That's, that's not in any variant of the Old Testament manuscripts. <laughs> it's uh, not found in any type of translation. That's not what it says. It says, do not withhold good from those who it is due when it is in your power to do it. And Peter puts it like this, speaking of the relationship of servants to masters. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, being mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's reminding us of our Christian duties, that even when we are persecuted by lawful authorities, there is a proper way uh, to engage them, even at those points where we must disobey. you You do so with fear and trembling. You might put it like this, you respect the office, even when the office holder doesn't respect the office that he's holding. You respect the office, even if the office bearer persecutes you and puts you to death. This is the path of the cross. 
So Solomon causes us to examine not only our relationships to those over us, and we can apply this in a lot of ways, right? I, in hindsight, could probably spent the whole time just talking about this verse. How do we relate to uh, kids? How do you relate to your parents? Um, uh, how do we relate to our civil authorities? How do you relate to your, your elders? And, and so on and so forth. But I think this is a, a good fruit for reflection during the week, isn't it? This is the path of wisdom. It's giving us a principle in how to deal with real sin in the midst of a sinful world. Well, Solomon causes us to examine not only our relationships to those over us, but also those around us, that of our neighbor, verses 28 to 32. Here he gives these kind of short, punctuated directives regarding the needs and safety of our neighbors, as well as our own well-being. You know, you kind of picture this, a man comes banging on your door late at night. He says, hey man, I just got robbed. I don't have any food to feed my family for dinner. Do you have any spare leftovers? And you say, go away, leave me alone, American Idol is on. Come back at 10.30. I don't know what time American Idol comes on, by the way, because I've never seen it. But that, that's actually the, the picture that's given to us in James. James chapter 2, you know, you say, yeah, no, I've got, I've got spare. I've got an extra meatloaf I happen to make tonight. But you know what? Uh, my favorite TV show is on. Can you come back in a little while? According to Solomon here in verse 28, that's not only inconsiderate, that's unjust. Why are you delaying providing for the need of your neighbor when you have the means to do so? It's not addressing the neighbor who says, no, sorry, I don't have any spare food. It's addressing the man who actually has the stuff and is, just does not want to be, what's the word I'm looking for? Doesn't want to be put out. Doesn't want to have to kind of get up and pull it out of the fridge and reheat the meatloaf. He's, he's, got, he's got other things. He's got, he's got his own like, uh, entertainment time going on that night. You remember the principle that we, even when we were working through 2 Corinthians last year, the principle that Paul gives of uh, the church uh, uh, in the wilderness, Israel in the wilderness, they're given manna every day. Everybody was given their own little jar or container. And some days you would collect a surplus. Sometimes you wouldn't have enough. And those with the surplus would give to those who would not have enough so that everybody would have enough. Remember, this is the way in which the Lord uh, works these things. And so there is a duty that we owe our neighbors. Why is it that you're delaying? Has comfort taken priority over your neighbor's need? According to Proverbs, this is the path of injustice. Again, it's addressing the people who have a surplus, and now somebody has asked them, hey, can you help us out? And they go, no, I don't really want to be inconvenienced. According to James chapter 2, it reflects not only injustice, but a barren faith. What use is it, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith but not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? We have to, again, put our money where our mouth is. The Charles Williams paraphrase. The very thing that we heard John the Baptist saying to the Pharisees this morning, bear fruit in accordance with repentance. We have a mutual obligation to our neighbors simply by virtue of the fact that they are our neighbors. And you go, well, who is my neighbor? Well, I have the perfect parable for you. 
Because it's the very thing that people ask Jesus. Who exactly is my neighbor? It's not simply the people that you like or the people that you have close affinities with. Again, I have to stress this. It's if we have the resources to help our neighbor in need, we are then obligated to help. We have an obligation not only to our neighbor's needs, but also to their safety. Again, I'm laying down basic principles here. You always have to think through it and, and take this in with everything else that Proverbs says about acting wisely uh, in these situations. But it's an important principle to keep in mind as you think about why is it uh, that I uh, am withholding good from good uh, that is due somebody around me or over me. Verse 29 says, do not devise uh, against your neighbor. Quite literally, do not plow against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. I kind of imagined as I was kind of working my way through this passage this week, uh, a man who's trying to mow down his unsuspecting neighbor on his riding lawnmower as he has his headphones on trying to trim the hedges. Don't plow him down when he's sitting trustingly beside you. Why would you do that? Why would you t- attack him without provocation? You know, I think we all have met people like that who provoke in order to manipulate. They are these kind of walking Geppettos seeking to have those around them dance on their little strings as they kind of say a thing here or there to manipulate people and try to elicit some type of reaction so that they can feel in control. People who stir up strife and discord The Lord calls this an abomination. You'll see that there in verse 32. This is not how the upright are to behave. Paul writes to the church of Rome saying, insofar as is possible, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Right? You cannot control how your neighbor treats you, but you can control how you respond and treat him. You're responsible for your own actions. He might continue to try to uh, manipulate you and, and do all sorts of things, but you're, you're in charge of your own actions. How do you respond in the midst of that? Don't try uh, to poke the bear. Later on in Proverbs, it'll give the image of a man who, uh, who walks by and grabs a dog by the ears and starts shaking violently and then runs off. So is the man who stirs up strife and discord. Don't know if you've ever tried to do that to a dog. Dogs typically don't find that amusing. And why would you do that anyway? You're just looking for trouble. And yet there are people, uh, uh, and Scripture calls that person the fool, the people who intentionally do this. They get some type of kick out of it for whatever sinful reason it is. Solomon says this is not to characterize your behavior. We have to ask ourselves, do we try to sow strife and discord for no reason at all? Now, that's the case. Why are we doing that? It's perverse. Very simple. Stop it. Don't betray the trust of your neighbor. If we could put it simply, your neighbor should not get stressed out having to live next to you on account of your shenanigans. This is very simple. Uh, and yet, I think we all recognize it because if you have the neighbor who decides to mow the lawn at 4 a.m. or is playing his music too loud at night or who continues to, to uh, uh, cut down part of your hedges you recognize how irritating this must be. In some ways, it's simple, almost comical, as you see it in so many TV shows, but I think we would all recognize how irritating it could be, and Proverbs says, don't do that, either on a smaller scale or a larger scale. Don't be the aggressor. You know, I, I can't help but thinking of 
you know, looking at the geopolitics this past week. It's where Russia is plowing down his neighbor. Unprovoked. My understanding, at least. But we shouldn't be trying to do that either with our own neighbors. Verse 30 goes on to say, we could paraphrase it like this, don't go around picking fights. The path of wisdom is not the path of needless violence. Right? This is not a... Uh, 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 an unqualified pacifism that uh, Solomon is arguing for. He never says that you can't stand up for your family or uh, uh, yourself or your country. Notice the qualifiers. Do not brawl with a man without cause. I remember I was on a flight uh, to the Philippines. I was on a mission trip when I was in high school, and it was a very long flight to the Philippines from Jacksonville, Florida. Very long. And uh, just as uh, after you know, flying over the Pacific, very long flight. I was in the middle of 737, whatever this massive plane we were riding was, and there's a guy next to me, uh, one of, an, another teenager, a little bit younger than me, um, and just as we were about to start getting off the flight, uh, again, after it's like 14 hours of flying, something like that, uh, what this kid does is he grabs the seat of the, an elderly gentleman from and starts shaking it violently, and the guy jumps out of the seat, and he turns around and looks, and just as he's turning around, this kid goes, Charles, why did you do that? And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and of course, naturally, I got an earful from uh, this older gentleman. And I'm saying, I, I didn't do anything to, to harm you. And yet there's somebody who intentionally thought it was funny. He thought it was fun to provoke a situation. And yet Solomon says, okay, that's, that's for adolescence. Actually, it's not even for adolescence. Adolescence to it, but this is the path of folly. Again, it's like the man who takes the dog by the ears and begins to, to shake them. It's like, that guy is the one who passes by and meddles with strife that does not belong to him. Again, to paraphrase, stay in your lane. The wise man walks the path of peace that has only the interest of your neighbor at heart. But we see the Lord has our own interests as well. You see in verses 31 to 32, uh, there's this recurrent theme of the envy uh, that the godly have over and against the wicked. You, you read Psalm 73, for instance, yeah, where the psalmist says, I have envied the arrogant. They get it all. They don't abide by the rules, and they get everything that they want, and there doesn't seem to be any justice in this world. You think of the danger that your heart is in when you begin to think like that, because what's going to happen? You're going to be like Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of Lord of the Rings where he says, well, why shouldn't I do this as well? Why shouldn't I have the ring? It's mine. But the godly says, why shouldn't I act like the ungodly man? Of course, we know the antidote, don't we? The psalmist says, I envy the arrogant until I entered the holy place and then I saw their destiny. To envy the wicked who prospers to set your heart on the path of destruction. See, uh, the, the path of wisdom does not begin in your outward actions. It begins in the heart, even your own attitude, and uh, even how you think of how the fool is acting. Just because the wicked prosper does not mean that they will always prosper. Unless they repent, their end is destruction. Why does the road that leads to death, Jesus says, it is a big highway filled with many bright, shiny lights and awesome attractions, but it still ends in damnation. 
Do not go that way. It is a highway to hell. The path of strife and violence might seem like fun, especially if you're kind of a young guy out causing a ruckus with your adolescent friends. You get the adrenaline rush, the, 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 the sense of belonging. Perhaps the feeling that you're finally in control of some facet of your life. And yet this path of plotting and rebelliousness is, according to verse 32, an abomination to the Lord. How much better the alternative or speaks of, instead of, a life of strife and discord, a life of intimacy and friendship with the living God. Which is the better alternative? See, Solomon is not simply giving you a list of things saying, don't do this, don't do this, and this, uh, don't do this. Oh, and forget this, don't do this either. He's saying there are two paths laid out before you. Which one uh, is the better path? Which would you rather have? The adrenaline rush, the discord, all leading to destruction, or would you rather have friendship with the maker of heaven and earth, communion with Christ? Which is more important to you, the pleasure of the power trip or the path of peace? Today is the day to choose, and these are your only two options, and this is how this portion of Scripture closes. You see here the two paths. You want to walk the path of strife? Well, you can have your own house, you can have your church, you can have your little business, you can have your empire founded on those principles of strife and discord. And yet Solomon says one day without warning, it will all come crashing down with you inside and nobody to save. The Lord has vowed the Lord will not be mocked. The man will reap what he sows. You want to go down this path, then you will reap the rewards of the path you have chosen. The Lord will rain down his everlasting curse on the unrepentant who treat their neighbor as we have seen in the examples above. And yet for the righteous, he will bless the dwelling of the righteous. Quite literally, he will bless your pasture lands. He will lead you beside those still waters. He will cause you to dwell in safety and security. He will bring rest to your souls. I think if we could summarize this particular portion of Scripture, we can simply say this. The litmus test for wisdom is a simple question that our Savior Himself puts to us. How do you care to be treated? Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this is the law and the prophets. You see, wisdom is practical. How do you want your neighbor to treat you? Okay, great. You go and you do the same. That's, that's a good rule of thumb. Do you, do you, want, to, uh, do you want your neighbor to uh, ridicule you behind your back, to slander your name on social media, uh, uh, to, to treat you like this or that or the other? No, you don't like that? Okay. Then maybe you should stop treating him like that as well then. Fools are said to parade shame about. I think that's the sense of verse 35, quite literally. The fools uh, hang disgrace high. You might, on the one hand, say that they are shameless in their actions. They revel in the very things that ought to make them blush. There's no honor in what they do. It will only end in destruction. But, on the other hand, there, is, uh, there are the humble who heed the instruction of Lady Wisdom. And Solomon says they will be honored because they know which path is the proper path. Might not look as flashy uh, as uh, the, uh, the wide road that leads to death. 
for those greater benefits. And so what we see in this passage, I think, the wise are being instructed in how to handle both their wealth and their words. Both to those around them and to those over them. And of course, uh, our Lord has not left us without example. This is the path our Savior himself had trod. He himself has given us a pattern that we might walk in his steps. Hebrews calls him the trailblazer, the pioneer of our faith, the one who has blazed away to heaven, but he has done so by carrying a cross. All who wish to follow him must carry that same cross in crucifying our own sinful desires and biting the tongue and reorienting even our own economic priorities. Be it to those in authority over us or our neighbor around us, we have specific duties, and it is summed up in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself even when they don't love you back. The words of 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this very thing you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, though he was reviled. He did not revile, he did not verbally abuse, and retaliate in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And just as Christ has done, so he calls us to imitate him on the path of wisdom and righteousness. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that you grant us wisdom and how to live our lives. We ask that you would give us the wisdom to live peaceably among all men and that you would bring peace. Uh, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.